0: Over the past number of weeks, we've been journeying through what is kind of an unusual sermon series for us. In fact, if you're here with us for the first time, or if recent weeks have been your first time with us, I want you to know that we don't typically have such an in depth focus on church history. But we're walking through a series now, though, that's intended both to help us understand our place within and also gain an appreciation for and learn from other traditions within the body of Christ, over 2,000 years. And, and truly, through this study, we're, we're hoping that as we journey through this, it will, it will be guiding us in more clearly understanding the Word of God as we come to it as well. So let's begin here with a little bit of review. When you go back over the first seven hundred years of the church's history, if you were to ask during that time, where was the center of Christianity during the first 1,700 years of the church's life, where where was the body of Christ most vibrant, most influential, dynamic, expansive, you would clearly say, well, it was in Europe, even as there was a range of traditions that were being formed. Now, if you move to the 1800s and 1900s, though, you would see that the center of Christianity began to expand It really began to move over those centuries to include North America in that way as a place of really the body of Christ moving most vibrantly forward in that kind of way. So the center of Christianity for for most of the 18th through 20th centuries was in this spread across the northern hemisphere. I just want you to have that picture. Because it was that way and really until the past 40 to 50 years, when, when the center of Christianity began to shift in a way that is unprecedented in church history and moved to the global south. Meaning that, that in our day, the, the place where the body of Christ is most vibrant, expansive, dynamic, missional in its growth is in the southern hemisphere now. Now, currently, the majority of the world's Christians live in South America, Africa, Asia, in that region. So though, although we might feel like the Northern Hemisphere, especially North America, is where the church is really happening, after all, we got Rick Warren, how could it not be here? It is not. It is the global south where the church is moving forward most dynamically. And that shift to the Southern Hemisphere is due largely to two church traditions, one being Roman Catholicism and the second being Evangelicalism, especially Pentecostal Evangelicalism. Now understand this. Denominational Pentecostals today number about 200 million people which by some estimates, that puts it at the second largest church tradition today, beyond Eastern Orthodoxy, just ahead of it, and trailing only Roman Catholicism. And understand this as well. Added to those 200 million people that are in Pentecostal denominations, there are an additional 300 million people around the world from other church traditions and denominations who would identify themselves as charismatics. Now, charismatics, that essentially means those are really kind of Pentecostals of other denominations. Uh, So you could say you could have charismatic Catholics and and charismatic Anglicans and Anglican churches that are that way. So today, we're going to look at this comparatively new and explosively expansive branch of the body of Christ called Pentecostalism. And to do that, we're going to walk through the three questions we've kind of been prompting us each week in this study. And we're going to start by asking, where did Pentecostalism come from? How did it begin? Because the starting points are fascinating, isn't it? And secondly, what are the distinctive teachings of Pentecostalism? And then thirdly, asking, what can we learn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters? Now, as we journey through this, I encourage you to take notes if you would. There's a sermon note sheet that might be help you to keep you on track of what we're talking through. We'll be covering a lot again, and, and also for later reference, if that would be of help to you. So let's start with our first question. Where did this explosive movement of Pentecostalism come from? Now, just to back up a bit in time, the, the roots of Pentecostalism are really in the holiness movements, the revivals of the 18th, 19th century in, in Britain and North America. And, and holiness teaching, if you remember, we mentioned this before, holiness teaching, uh, it really focused on a, a deeper spiritual life, a, a, a greater devotion, a, a moral and ethical transformation in following Jesus. And perhaps the seminal holiness teacher of those days was an Anglican priest whose name was John Wesley. You know of him. In the 1700s in England. Now Wesley, along with his brother Charles, taught that there was a second blessing we could experience in which a follower of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, could begin to experience what he called Christian perfection meaning it was a spirit-empowered holiness... We would grow in Christ-likeness to that kind of degree, in obedience and holy living in our lives. And Wesley held revival meetings calling people to live this kind of spirit-empowered life of holiness, a deeper devotion to Christ. And at these revivals, what started happening was there started to be quite a strong emotional response of people to his message. They started to become overcome emotionally. And as as they repented to God, they would cry out. Many were falling down on the ground calling out to God. Now, this started criticism about Wesley's revivals because people there were so enthusiastic, which actually is the right word because enthusiasm comes from the Greek words entheos, in God. There's an in-godness about it. All right, so that was Wesley in England, 1700s. You got that picture, right? All right. So having that kind of background to it. Now, the modern Pentecostal movement, that is largely viewed as beginning at the start of the 20th century. And, and particularly with two men, one named Charles Parham, one William Seymour. And the simplicity of the unfolding of this stunning movement uh, is... I, I just want you to catch the picture of it. And, and here's the story. At, at the start of the 20th century... It was a time, if you can imagine it, where there was really, across the northern hemisphere, I would say, a heightened spiritual expectation. That There was a census calling for a deeper pursuit of holiness. And again, largely, it flowed out of Wesley's teaching. And in 1904, if you recall, there was a great Welsh revival. In in the course of less than a year, 100,000 people in Wales turned in faith to Christ. Now, news about that revival and other revivals started spreading across Britain and Europe and and North America. So there was this global expectation and there was a similar expectation already being kind of fed in North America. And one man who had that kind of longing, that expectation, was a Wesleyan, a Methodist pastor named Charles Parham, who was also a professor... In the great state of Kansas, little old Kansas. Can anything good come out of Kansas? Well, Parham, he had this conviction increasingly regarding the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. Now, now speaking in tongues, if, you, if you're not familiar, it's kind of the Greek word for it is glossolalia. I mean, it, speaking in tongues, it is a, a Holy Spirit-given ability to speak in a, a human or a heavenly language that the speaker has never learned. So it's described, for example, if you remember in in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, let's just jump there for a second. Turn to Acts 2. and, And if you remember the setting in Acts 2, Jesus has resurrected from the grave. He ascended to heaven, and before ascending, he said to his disciples, do not start ministering until what? Until you receive the Holy Spirit. I want you to wait For the Holy Spirit, because when you receive the Spirit, as we read earlier, he will come with power upon you. So the disciples of Jesus, the church really, its first season was waiting. It just waited. And this is what happened as they waited. And it came upon on the Jewish feast day of Pentecost. This is what we read in Acts chapter 2. And, and verse 1, those, those powerful verses. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven, can, can you imagine this, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And and divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, in addition to that picture, we we see similar expressions of tongues in Acts 10 at the home of Cornelius, Acts 19 in Ephesus, where the Spirit first came fully on these believers, So we have that picture. Now return back to the 20th century, all right? Let's return to Kansas. And and there's Charles Parham, who, along with others, is encouraging the regaining of the spiritual gift of tongues. But Parham's teaching was unique among these other teachers in that he began to teach that speaking in tongues was the necessary, the always-present evidence of the Holy Spirit coming on somebody in power for the first time, having a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, that really hadn't been taught before Parham brought that forward. Now, Parham hadn't even himself received the gift of tongues at that time. But he began preaching about this on the Bible College campus where he taught. And on January 1st, 1901, he had a prayer meeting for the students of the campus there in which they were praying that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And at that meeting, Parham prayed over a student named Agnes Osman. And the description historically is this. It was like the glory of God descended on Agnes. And she, like those in Acts 2 at, at Pentecost, began speaking in an unknown language. Some there identified it as Chinese, a language that Agnes had never learned herself. And the Spirit came over her so powerfully that it said she couldn't even speak English for the next three days. Now, after that experience, after Parm actually saw the evidence of the Spirit speaking in, or working in tongues through somebody, and then subsequently received that gift himself, he started going out on a series of revival meetings across the Midwest. He eventually ended up in Texas, and there one of his students was a, a humble, meek, 34-year-old son of former slaves named William Seymour. Seymour listened to Parham intently, and then he headed to Los Angeles to spread the news of this message, this teaching there. And in April 1906, Seymour, who is described again as a a meek, soft-spoken man, had a revival meeting in an old, dilapidated building on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And at this meeting, April 1906, scores of people received this gift of tongues. There were these ecstatic spiritual experiences. There were miracles they claimed to have taken place there. In all this, in a very rare, broadly interracial gathering. And so it was dynamic. And news of that, it spread like wildfire because there was such a, a longing, an expectation for some visitation of God like this. And those meetings, picture this, those meetings continued three meetings a day, seven days a week for the next three and a half years. And then even beyond that, The Los Angeles Times, as they heard about this, this is their report from a journalist. Meetings are held in a tumble-down shack on Azusa Street, and the devotees of this weird doctrine practice the most fanatical rites. They preach the wildest series. They work themselves into a state of mad excitement and their peculiar zeal. The night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of the worshipers who spend hours swaying forth and back in a nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and supplication. They claim to have the gift of tongues and be able to understand this babble. Now, understand this. That kind of criticism didn't just come from the public media. Other church leaders started giving the same kind of criticism. One of the critics, intriguingly, was Charles Parham himself. Listen to what he said about that gathering. I'm gonna edit this down a bit. It, Men and women knelt together or fell across one another. A woman, perhaps of wealth and culture, could be seen thrown back in the arms of a man and held tightly thus as she shivered and shook in freak imitation of Pentecost. Horrible, awful shame. This went on for years. And these kind of emotional, ecstatic, enthusiastic meetings started spreading across the country. And then the people that had experienced it started going back into their local church congregations to begin to emulate it in their local church bodies. Can you guess how the local church leaders responded? They gave them the right boot of fellowship. We could say it that way. Because they were deeply concerned about it. And so with nowhere to go, these... Pentecostals now started gathering in their own gatherings to share together in what they'd experienced, and that's the starting point of the Pentecostal movement. So history tells us that those 1906 Azusa Street meetings are the origin of this movement that is now around 500 million people. (laughs) Stunning, isn't it? The fastest growing branch of Christianity in the world. So is that where Pentecostalism began? Well, in one sense, we'd say yes. Pentecostals would also say, though, well, Pentecostalism actually began in the early church. Because they would say, we are only recovering what the normal pattern of church life was in the early church, as described in Scripture. And really, to that, we would largely agree. I mean, that these sign gifts, those those miraculous kind of gifts like, like prophecy or healings, speaking in tongues, they were clearly present in the early church, as Scripture tells us. And really, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us those miraculous gifts were just for that time alone. But it's worth noting that at the time of the Apostle Paul, and really in decades right after Paul, these particular spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues seem to have been very common. You read of it in the historical writings. But by the 3rd century, though, those early kind of miraculous gifts of the church seem largely to have passed away. They're hardly even mentioned. And and for example, in the great early church father, St. Augustine, in the 5th century, he began teaching, along with many other church fathers, that those miraculous gifts were only for the early church as as a way to establish its authority. And primarily he said that because they were no longer seen in his day. So that's really led to really kind of two main variant views. There are others, but two main views about these miraculous gifts, spiritual gifts. One is a view held by Pentecostals and others, and that would be that the church in those centuries lost spiritual gifts that were still available to it. Now, Another view would be that of the cessationists, it is called. And cessationists would say, no, those spirituals, those miraculous gifts are no longer available to the body of Christ. They were just intended for the churches that started out in its formation. Now, we don't have time to get all into this and study it in depth uh, today, but, but you've heard me say, I disagree with the cessationist view based on what Scripture says. Because scripture talks about all of these spiritual gifts. And again, it's nothing in scripture that would tell us those gifts are no longer available. And it would also look to some of the ministry that the church is happening around the world and how these gifts are being expressed, often in places other than North America. All right, so that's kind of the seedbed, the roots of Pentecostalism, which leads us then to ask, so what are the distinctive teachings of Pentecostalism? Uh, What would they be? And I'll tell you, one of the challenges of trying to summarize Pentecostal teaching is that there's no one central body, there's no one comprehensive. Pentecostal organization. I mean, there are a number of distinct uh, Pentecostal denominations, even in Canada, like the PAOC, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. There's four square churches and others, different denominations. So similar to evangelicalism, it's kind of hard to make blanket statements about all the teaching of Pentecostals, because it can it vary a bit from denomination to denomination. But, I, but I'd say this. In general, I think we can have this view, that in general, we could view Pentecostalism is kind of a subset of evangelicalism. You know what I mean by that? I mean, and for most kind of North American Pentecostal churches, they would share the the five distinctive markings of evangelicalism that we looked at last week. Remember what those were? Those five, just quickly. One is biblicism, a deep regard, high regard for the authority of Scripture. A second is crucicentrism, where the cross of Christ and his work there is central to the message of the church. Conversionism is a third, where there's a deeply for people to need to, to make a change, to repent, and whoa, there we go, lost my name, to convert to Christ. A fourthly is activism, the need to live out this faith, preaching it in word and action. And then, and then, fifthly, transdenominationalism, which is that partnering together in kingdom efforts. All of those five markings of evangelicalism generally would also be found in Pentecostal churches. Okay? So, with that, then, what then would bring distinction to Pentecostal teaching? Well, where Pentecostals might differ, I'll point to three distinctives that, again, you can find in other churches, but these particularly are in Pentecostal churches. And there are three distinctives. One would be this. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidence by speaking in tongues. Now, now just say that phrase with me so you remember, will you? Baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidence by tongues. Now, as we speak of that, that term baptism of the Holy Spirit, it can be defined in a whole range of ways. And and we're going to talk about that a bit more next week. But understand this, the Pentecostal, this baptism of the Holy Spirit in Pentecostal teaching is an experience of the, the filling of the Holy Spirit beyond the initial reception of the Holy Spirit when you come in faith to Jesus. I mean, Pentecostals would teach, as we would teach, that when we turn in faith to Jesus, when we call out to him, his Holy Spirit comes within us. They would totally say that. But they would say that beyond that initial reception of the Spirit, there is a second blessing, a second work of the Spirit in which the Holy Spirit comes on a person in particular power and blessing for ministry. One of the pictures they use of this, it's like a glass of water. When we serve, first receive Christ, it's like water is poured in the glass of our life. The baptism of the Spirit, though, is like taking that glass, which already has water in it, and plunging it into a river so it's just drenched completely in water. That, that's their image of it. And that baptism of the Holy Spirit in Pentecostal teaching is always evidenced by speaking in tongues. All right, that's the first distinctive. A second distinctive would be this. The immediacy of Christ's return. The immediacy of Christ's return. Just say that with me, would you? Immediacy of Christ's return. Now, again, we look at that and say, well, don't all Christian churches speak of Christ's return? We do. But, but beyond the belief that Jesus will indeed return, again, as all Christian traditions teach, Pentecostal churches, I think it's fair to say, have a greater expectation of the potential immediacy of Christ's return. Because the Pentecostals, what took place for them, they looked at their revivals. They looked at what took place in their gatherings. And then they read the words of Joel 2, which we read before. Joel 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And so they saw those words describing the final days before Christ's return and would say, we're in those days. <laughs> we're seeing this take place. So Pentecostal churches often give particular emphasis to explaining then prophetic words of Scripture that speak of Christ's return with a, very, a great immediacy to it. They, they connect those prophetic words more quickly with current events. So, so, for example, when, the, when they read in the book of Revelation about some of the great powers in these images at, at work, they are more apt to say, okay, see that power described in Revelation? That's the Soviet Union. Oh, see that other one? That's America. Now they need to say, well, it's not the Soviet Union. Now it's Russia or, or Iraq because there's an expectancy he's coming at any moment that needs to be describing the day we're living in because we're living in Joel's days. So there's an expectancy of the immediacy of Christ's return. And then a third distinctive is this. It's an emphasis on modern-day miracles and healings. Just say those words, will you? Miracles and healings. I mean, it's similar to how they emphasize the gift of tongues, Pentecostals, they, they look at the early church. They see what was taking place there by the Holy Spirit. They, they look at the miraculous works, the healings that God was doing, and they understandably ask, why not now? Well, why not among us? And, and there's an expectancy that if we have faith, we will be healed. There's that kind of expectancy. Now, now we would say, here for example, we would say, Absolutely, totally, yes, absolutely. We should definitely call out to God, ask for his healing of the sick. James 5 tells us, and we practice that. We come, we put oil on those who are sick. We pray over them, ask for God's healing. But along with that, we also realize from Scripture, as is evidenced in the life of the Apostle Paul, that God often teaches and forms us more in our brokenness, in our illness, in our disease, in our challenges and suffering than he does in our wellness. And and so we'd understand that a lack of healing does not mean a lack of faith in this life, which we think is a very important emphasis. Okay, so if those are just three of the distinctives of Pentecostalism, and again, of most charismatic churches, it leads to the question again, so what about us here? Uh, What about Southview? How would our perspectives line up or differ from theirs? Now I've just touched on a couple of differences right now. And again, next week, as, as we look at the Christian Missionary Alliance, particularly, we'll be talking about some of the distinctions we have along that way. So we do, but ask, it's worth asking. Should Southview be called a charismatic church? And then I'll tell you, on one hand, I would want the answer to be yes. <laughs> Yes, we we want the charisma. We want the work of the Spirit among us. In fact, our symbol, the reason on our symbol, we have at the center of our symbol these, these letters that remind us we need the Word of God, that we need prayer. The S stands for the Spirit. This Holy Spirit is essential to this life with Jesus. You cannot live this life apart from the Holy Spirit. And so in that way, we would echo the teaching of our Pentecostal friends. I mean, we believe deeply that the way of the Spirit is the only way to live this life together. And so in that way, people might feel an echo in our teaching, what we believe. We believe the need for the spiritual gifts to be expressed in the body of Christ. But but there are two teachings, though, where we would likely differ from most Pentecostal or charismatic churches, and, and which might cause some to say, well, you're not really a charismatic church. And, and one of the differences in our teaching would be in regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're going to expand on this more next week, but let me just mention this here. That, that we understand from Scripture, as you read through Scripture, that when we turn in faith to Christ, we incredibly are sealed with the Spirit. We receive all of the Holy Spirit, not just a portion of the Spirit. So really the question for us is not as much... How do I get more of the Holy Spirit in my life? The question we challenge one another with is, how can the Holy Spirit have more of you? How can he control more of you? That, 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 that question of beginning to release control of my life to the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit within me, that is sanctification. That is growing in holiness as I release myself to the power and I submit to the obedience to the Word of God and the leadings of the Spirit in my life. So so that's one of the ways that our teaching at Southview might differ from many charismatic or Pentecostal churches. And there's also a second way that our teaching would differ from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. And in its regard to the evidence of the sign of the fullness or baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because we do not believe that that speaking in tongues is the only sign of the Spirit's coming upon you. It could be one of the signs. It's one of the spiritual gifts. But because we do see in Scripture, in the book of Acts, for example, the first coming of baptism of the Holy Spirit, we clearly see in Acts 2, again in Acts 10, 19, one of the expressions early on of the Spirit coming was speaking in tongues by those who came under the Spirit's submission. But we understand also, we read elsewhere in Scripture, though, That scripture says there are a range of spiritual gifts. They're given by God according to his purpose to those who have turned in faith. And those gifts, they definitely include, we believe, speaking in tongues, prophecy, miracles, healings. We believe those are still available today. In addition to mercy, administration, leadership, teaching, and others. So, so we would turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, for example, and Paul's word there to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we read this in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and you individually, you know, don't just hear this academically, hear this to us. You, you are the body of Christ, and individually you're members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, teachers, then miracles, then these spiritual gifts of of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues as well. So in this listing here, Paul is listing some of the spiritual gifts. It's not a comprehensive list, but he's saying these are some of the gifts available to the body of Christ. Right? That's what he's saying. And then look at what Paul says in verse 29 to the church. Are all apostles, are all prophets... Are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? What is Paul expecting the response to every one of those questions to be? No, that's what he's expecting. Are all apostles? Does everyone in church have that gifting or ministry? Paul would say, well, no. Do some have that gifting or ministry? Yes, but not all. Do all speak in tongues in the body of Christ? Paul is asking. And Paul's expecting us to say, no. Do some have that gift? Yes, but not all. So that is why we would say, do all then speak in tongues at the coming of the Holy Spirit in their life? No. Might some of us express it that way? Yes, it could be. But it might also be expressed in a powerful expression of ministry by helping or administration or another spiritual gift. So in light of that, what should our attitude be at Southview in light of Paul's teaching? Two things it mentioned. For one, what Paul says in verse 31 here, earnestly desire the higher gifts, Paul writes. What does he mean by the higher gifts? Well, mentions, he mentions later on, like the gift of prophecy. Paul is saying here to the Corinthians who, really like us, love these dramatic gifts, <laughs> Paul is saying, let your focus be not on the gifts that build you up, but on gifts that build others up around you, like prophecy. Focus on those higher gifts, he says. And then additionally, he adds these words, these following words, right upon that in 1 Corinthians 13. Regardless of which spiritual gift or gifts you have, Paul says this in chapter 13, verse one. And I'll show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels pause there for a second, which seems to indicate there are tongues that are known human language, the the tongues of men, Where, where someone who doesn't know a human language by the blessing or gifting of the Spirit is able to speak that language by God's prompting, like in Acts 2. But it also seems he's saying here, there are other tongues. They're not human languages. He says they're the tongues of angels. They're like a heavenly language of a different kind. Paul seeming to speak of here. And so Paul says again, even if I have the gift to speak in tongues of men or of angels, but if I have not love, you know what I'm really doing? I'm just a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if I have love, what am I? Say it. I am Nothing. Paul says to the Corinthians, and therefore to us, beloved, it doesn't matter which spiritual gifts you are using. If love is not the driving force behind your use of that gift in ministry, your ministry is just clanging noise to God. It means nothing. Okay, so coming back then. Back to our initial point. We would say this. Can the gift of tongues be one of the spiritual gifts that evidences somebody being filled with the Spirit? And that we'd say, biblically, yes, it it can be. But it is not the only or even an essential or necessary sign of the Holy Spirit being expressed in someone's life. And again, think of what Paul said in Galatians 5. Paul said, if you want to know what it looks like when a life is fully under the Spirit's control, focus on this. It looks like this. It looks like love and joy and peace and patience. And kindness, and it looks like goodness and and faithfulness. It looks like gentleness and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So again, we ask the question, okay, so at Southview here, are we charismatic? To some, the answer would be no. In, in In these ways I've just mentioned, we have a different understanding of the baptism of the Spirit. We have a different understanding of the gift of tongues as being a necessary evidence of the Spirit's coming. So are we a charismatic church? I would still want to say yes. (laughs) We long for the Spirit, his full expression in us to be submitted to him. We long for every gift to be expressed that would build up the body of Christ that would expand the kingdom, amen? Amen. So in those ways, are we charismatic? I'll say yes. (laughs) Which leads to a third question for us that I'll touch on. So what can we learn from Pentecostalism? And I'll, I could mention so many things, but let me just note one learning from our Pentecostal friends, and I'll just put it this way. What can we learn from them? I think simply this. We must live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Will you read that phrase with me? We must live by the power of the Holy Spirit. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, this, think of this. The Spirit of the God of creation lives within you, he is present there. So Paul would exhort in his letter to church in, Galatia, in Galatians, Galatians 5.25, if you live by the Spirit, the Spirit is within you, keep in step with the Spirit. He would exhort, he would plead that. end. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he would say, do not quench the Spirit. Because you, believer, you can quench the Spirit's work in your life by turning against him, by disobeying him. God wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. He wants to comfort you by his spirit. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, he's going to lead us into all truth. Jesus said as well that the Holy Spirit within us will affirm within us a sense that, indeed, we are children of God. If we will allow ourselves to be led by him, submit to him by his guidance, by the sword of the spirit, if we would not quench the spirit in our lives. If I would invite the Spirit and say, in light of Jesus' words, Oh, Father, I I pray your Spirit within me would be expressed in fullness of power as I submit to you. A while back, in one of our windstorms we had here, a tree in our yard got largely knocked down, and it was a a big tree. Uh, So in seeing that, I went into the garage, and I pulled out one of my trusty tools, uh, this baby here, and it's a fine saw. Don't look at the rust. I, I pulled it out and went out the tree. These, I mean, these are big branches. And, and the thing was, I went out and started sawing them to break it down into manageable pieces. And I'll tell you, it worked. It took forever, but, but it worked. And I went with this way for a while and then stepped back and thought, what in the world am I doing? I went over to Home Depot, and I got this baby right? That's what I'm talking about. And I'll tell you, this had way more power than this baby. In fact, I wanted to go to neighbors and say, you got anything you want me to cut down? I'm ready. And I'll tell you, I I think this is an apt picture for us, friends. Can we live the Christian life this way? Yes, you can by your your own physical strength, by your own emotional endurance in that way. You can live that way if you choose to. But at least realize this is offered to you. It is not a pathway of ease or delight necessarily, but it's a pathway of power of ministering by God's strength within you. And so I imagine God looks down at us often and says to us, why in the world are you ministering this way? Do you not know what I have available to you? Southview, will you submit yourselves to the power of the Spirit? No one take a picture of this right now. I don't think it's a good image. <laughs> but I think some, it is something we can learn from our Pentecostal friends. Would we minister this way? And as said, God would have that work within us? Uh, just this past week, at the first part of this week, I shared with you last week, I think, that uh, we had a meeting for the pastors of Calgary, a gathering at the Entheos Retreat Center. We gathered just to, to pray for one another uh, and, and pray for our city. And it was a great gathering across denominational the lines. There were a couple other South viewers there as well. And, and I think they would equally say it was such a, a distinct time of a blessing together, and, and just being representatives of the church of Jesus in our city, and it, whether Free Church, Reformed, Alliance, Pentecostal United uh, gathered there. Two of the pastors that were there were our long-time serving Calgary pastors, over 30 years. Both are Pentecostal pastors, Phil Nordine and Ken Gill. And, and again, the delight in being there with them, in, in ministering in prayer along with them, I, personally, I was just so formed, so encouraged, and, and truly inspired by them. And in just hearing their heart for Christ, their heart for our city, their longing to see God work with power to see the kingdom expand. They're longing to see our church united in our city, in a full awareness of our kind of different distinctives, tradition, tradition. And, and additionally, their desire just to deeply bless those other pastors there, and, and I was one of them. And in fact, as we closed our days of prayer there, before we all departed, I, w- I walked up to Ken, and I just hugged him. I said, brother, it is such an honor to serve in the city with you. And he said some uh, very gracious words of encouragement and, and really prophetically uh, over me and added, Clyde, you need to know, I, I pray for you consistently, and however I can support you, I, I am there. And, and just in, in that embrace, there is so much that unites us. And, and, and so little, comparatively little, distinguishes us. I, apart from the fact that when, when my brother Ken prays, he like knocks down walls. I mean, that dude prays. I mean, can I give you a quick story? Well, as part of our gathering there, one of the things we did is we were gathering this large circle praying together. At times we'd have an individual just sit in the middle of the circle and we'd have four or five of us go around and just ask God's blessing on that pastor and just encouragement, whatever it would be. One of the individuals moved forward, sat in the chair, and it was a pastor that Ken knew. So Ken, along with a few other pastors, went up, gathered around this pastor, and they began praying over him. And Ken let off. And, And he started praying for this pastor. And I'll tell you, His prayer wasn't like a request, it was like a declaration. You know what I mean? Of just calling forth scriptural truths in this pastor's life, of what God would do, and speaking truth, speaking blessing into his life. I mean, and as he prayed in that room, as we were gathered collectively there, it was a powerful moment. And his words were forceful. I mean, they were dynamic, they were biblical, and and truly, they were loud. (laughs) I mean, he preached in that prayer. And when Ken had finished praying, there was like this holy hush across the room. Until one pastor, actually a Lions friend of mine, said, ain't nobody praying after that prayer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me say this. Beloved, I, I, don't want, I don't just want us to learn from our Pentecostal friends. I want myself to learn from them. I'll tell you this, I think someone could look at my life in ministry and might not be fully certain what I believe about the Holy Spirit. I hope that wouldn't be the case, but it might be. I don't think anyone would look at my brother's Ken's life and ministry and wonder what he believes about the Spirit. So can I encourage us in this way? That this not be an academic exercise, but truly perhaps we hear this through our Pentecostal brothers and sisters as a call to us as the body of Christ and say, how will we choose to walk in this life? And can I give you an opportunity in this moment, as we pray, before I lead us in prayer, to just, if you want to say, Father, I, I submit myself to you, I, I pray that your spirit within me would fill me fully, that I would not quench you in any way. Perhaps for you, for the first time, you want to turn in faith to Jesus. And if you do that today, if you call out to him in repentance, I'll tell you this, the Holy Spirit of God himself will indwell you. It might not be expressed in ecstatic experience. Maybe it will be, but it might not be. But know this for certain, by the word of God, his spirit is within you. So can I just now pause in the silence? Can you we bow your heads with me? Here in Fireside, Imago Mosaic, can we bow in, in this moment... Can I invite you to say what would you want to say to God about the work of his spirit in your life? Just in the silence, I invite you to call out to him. Let me lead us in prayer, and after that, we're going to receive this special offering for this Love in Motion project, and as we receive this offering, even as the worship team leads us, let that be a time of prayer, continued prayer, reflection, resting in God. Because Father, we come to you now with thanksgiving at the wonder that you would bless us with the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, collectively, we confess we have quenched your work within us within us individually, within our body. And we would pray, Father, would you give us eyes to see where we are hindering your hand. Would would you give us boldness and courage to hand over every dimension, every room of our life to you that your spirit might work within us and fill us with your grace and power. And Father, not for our glory, not just for experience, Father, but but for the glory of your son's name and for the expansion of your kingdom. We pray this together and all God's people say, Amen.